0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 50, Birds, Bird Dogs, and Bluegrass. I want to say a big thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast every week, and an even bigger thank you to those of you who have reached out with your comments and suggestions. This podcast doesn't get to 50 episodes without the great guests we've had, but even better listeners. This week, I'm joined by another born and raised Pennsylvania guy, Corey Bigelow. Corey is a Southwestern PA native who's currently works as an Army recruiter in Kentucky. We discuss his journey in the bird dogs, tips for getting the most out of your dog, and his new passion, bluegrass uplanders. Let's dive into these topics with Corey and start a good old-fashioned BS session. So where where are you from? Uh, in um, so
1: I'm originally from Greensburg. Okay. Uh, I grew up there, lived there for, let's see, I think I got moved um, through the Army when I was 30, so that was, I think, 2014 is when I got moved, Um, and that's how I ended up meeting Neil, who kind of hooked us up, and I was like, this is perfect, he's a Pennsylvania boy, I'm a Pennsylvania boy, and we'll just talk for an hour or so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm always uh, excited to get some Pennsylvania people on. and uh, I actually went to Seton Hill University in downtown okay. Greensburg yep. uh, is where I went to school. So I know I spent uh, a solid four years in Greensburg, so I know it. Nice. Not as well as you, but, but I definitely know it.
1: Yeah, we, we probably crossed paths at some point, I would imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a strong possibility. Uh, so you mentioned, the, you mentioned Neil. Uh, who, yeah. Neil Hoffs, we, I've had him on the podcast uh, early this year. I yep. was supposed to meet him in person because I went to, my father and I uh, scheduled a hunt to North Dakota for pheasants, and uh, actually we made it all the way there, and then found out that a blizzard was coming in, so uh, (laughs) we turned around and drove all the way back to Pennsylvania, and I didn't actually get to meet Neil, you know, in person, but uh, how did you come across Neil? How did you meet him?
1: So, um, and, and it's funny to, not to take away from your question, but I had friends that were stuck in Fargo the same exact time that you were there and they waited it out because my friend's a mover. Um, so he can basically take time whenever he wants. So they waited it out and then headed West, uh, to continue hunting. But so I'm, I'm in the army, um, did in the army for 17 years. Uh, this past December, I hit my 17 year mark and, uh, I'm a recruiter and, um, I started out as an Army Reservist at the reserve unit there in Greensburg and then became a recruiter and actually recruited out of Greensburg out of Westmoreland Mall. Um, And then I was there for a little over four years and the Army found it um, in their hearts to say, hey, it's time for you and your family to move. And I'm like, "Okay, let's do it. Um, You know, I was reluctant. I went through a little spout with cancer. Uh, that was removed. So, you know, I was kind of hesitant to leave my doctors and everything in the hospital that I was going to, but it was a new adventure. I had lived in Greensburg for 30 years and never got the opportunity really to live anywhere else um, other than a deployment and living up in Western Pennsylvania right on the border. Uh, but my career manager called me and said, Hey, uh, I got one of your top choices. Uh, it's your number three choice. And we have, basically we got to pick an area which the area that i picked was minneapolis and then from there they could pick where you were actually going to be stationed at uh and he goes i've got fargo north dakota and i'm like when can we go so uh you know a, a guy that has had i've had bird dogs since 2008 so um you know the, as you know the pennsylvania stocking and you know it's all good and i guided for a while at on point outfitters down in addison pennsylvania um but got moved out to North Dakota um, and hooked up with the local pheasants Forever chapter out there because I was a member of the Green, or the, I think it was the Westmoreland County chapter. It's been so long now. Uh, so I hooked up with the one out there. Um, Neil ended up being the, I think at the time he was the treasurer. And uh, we just kind of hit it off and became friends. And, you know, it's it's not hard to hunt out there, but it's nice having somebody that can kind of show you the ropes and show you where to go. Um, you know, the, the hunting out there is amazing as far as there's millions of acres of property. Um, and you can, I don't know if it's this way anymore, but when I lived there, as long as it wasn't posted, you could hunt it. So Neil had a lot of spots and stuff like that, that were not posted, um, that we got on birds every time we were on the out there. So, um, that's basically how him and I met. We kind of just hit it off and became hunting buddies. So um, we're pretty close to the same age. So and he had little ones like I did. I've got a seven-year-old. So uh, you know, it's kind of kind of nice. So
0: yeah, uh, it in Pennsylvania, it's it's hard to be a bird dog owner. You mm-hmm. know, as you know, it's hard. I mean, because really, you only have. I guess three game birds that you can go after if you want to include quail, but those numbers are so limited in a very small area in the southeastern part of, of the state. Um, you know, that's a, you know, from, from Pittsburgh, you know, which isn't too far West from, from where either of us grew up. Yeah. That's a solid five hour drive. Um, if not six hours to try to get into quail that are real tough, um, grouse which if you can find the spot where they're at is great um, mm-hmm. but those numbers have been dwindling in the last uh, couple years um, yeah. and then pheasant you know you're only you're only shot for pheasants or like you said, you know the stocked birds um, so it's tough but trying to hunt pheasants is nice because you know where to go and especially now yeah. they have an interactive map um, they tell you pretty much where they're stalking them um, you just have to combat the the orange army that is uh, other <laughs> uh, yeah, hunters out there Um, but you know you know where the boundaries are for the game lands and uh, I had been thinking about going to North Dakota for a couple years and I connected with Neil uh, on Twitter of all places oh, wow. and um, he immediately offered up you know, to show me around a little bit because they do have that, like you mentioned, that plots program um, mm-hmm. where you can just walk on if, as long as it's not posted. Um, you know, and as an avid deer hunter my entire life, it's nice to be around small game hunters because they're very eager to share with you where they have. Maybe not their best spots, but uh some really good spots where you can get some good hunting in because deer hunters are notoriously <laughs> very uh, protective of their their honey holes so um yeah, that was definitely it, it was intimidating for me to think about going to North Dakota until I started to talk to Neil about the possibilities and and having him sort of guide where I go
1: yeah absolutely and exactly what you said like he was open arms i mean i stayed at his parents house several times uh, tons of times um they lived he lived about 20 minutes from me outside of fargo in a little town called davenport north dakota um and then uh his parents lived south of us south of fargo i can't even remember what the town was called um i got i i lived in North Dakota in 2014 and 2015. I've been in Kentucky since 2015. So I'm like already forgetting stuff from up there. But um yeah, he was just, you know, kind of open arms took me in under his wing, you know, kind of like what, what you're telling me. Um just a real solid dude that loves to hunt. Um you know and, and loves good dog work. And uh what was funny about Neil at the time when I hunted with him, he only had one dog so when he found out that i had when we lived in north dakota i had three pointers on a lab, and uh when he found that out he we were like attached to the hip then when it came to hunting because you know hunting with having one dog is fine but when you live in an area like that and you're trying to get out all the time if one of those dogs go down i mean you know and that happened to, to his Uh, lab her ellie was her uh, her name she was the one that he had lost I think, a couple years ago um you know so i was his go-to hunting buddy because i always had three or four dogs in the truck (laughs) so um, yeah
0: let's talk about dogs for a second uh because you mentioned uh in the pre-interview questionnaire that you have five hunting dogs now yep how first let everyone know what breeds they are and then how do you manage 5 hunting dogs when you're trying to do you know upland <laughs> hunting
1: so um i'll kind of go all the way back i started out with bird dogs in 2008 um got a lab mix dog from the shelter thought that i was going to make it a bird dog that turned out to be a horrible idea uh he had no prey drive you know nothing i had no idea what i was doing so i hooked up with a outfitter in um, they were out of Confluence, but they had, they had two farms at the time, one in Confluence and one in Addison, on-point outfitters. And they bred uh, LHU English Pointers, um, English Setters, and Pointing Labs. Um, now I think they're just down to, to English Pointers and English Setters. So I got my first English Pointer from them, Ruger. Uh, he's still with us today. He's going on 12. Um, he's just a fat old man now. So uh, And then from there i got my second pointer uh harley from the same outfitter uh i had ruger for about two years and then got her just wanted to add a second dog and of course i was going on a hunting trip to new york for grouse up in uh, the and Kill and uh grouse and woodcock and my buddy was go- that was going he had i think he took three dogs with them and i had two so we took five with us um and then from there, we had a litter of puppies. I got a, kept a puppy from there, so I had three pointers. Uh, and then fast forward, moved to North Dakota. Can't live in North Dakota without a waterfowl dog. I mean, how are you going to get your ducks? Uh, so I ended up hooking up with a local retriever group, and they turned me on to a uh, professional trainer out of Wisconsin um, and ended up getting my yellow lab gunner. And I uh, still have him. He's going on six. So he's pretty seasoned uh, waterfowl and upland dog by this time. Um, and then I think it was in 2015, right after we moved to Kentucky from North Dakota, uh, my friend Brandon Tarquinio uh, that I met doing UFTA, which is the United Field Trialers Association. That's shoot to retrieve field trials. Kind of something we do in the offseason just to keep... The dog's tuned up. Um, And that goes back to when you say, how do you manage five dogs? That's part of it goes into that field trialing kind of in the off season. Um, You know, it really helps because you're practicing all the time and they're always on birds. So, Uh, but he had a guy that um, had a bunch of dogs. He had three or four kids and the, the dogs and kids and everything. He was trying to downsize his pack. Not with the kids, though. He didn't want to get rid of any of his kids, which is fine. <laughs> but uh, he had this, I think, two-year-old English Pointer at the time, Jed, that another old timer had given him because Jed has a crooked tail. So his the tip of his tail looks like that. His mom stepped on it when he was a puppy and broke it. So they got him fixed. But this guy that I got him from, he sent him to a professional trainer in Texas. For like three or four months at like 800 bucks a month so this dog you know he's my free four thousand dollar dog basically is what i tell everybody um but he ended up just giving him he gave him to my buddy my buddy had him for like two or three weeks before i was able to get back home to pa to pick him up um and i've been guiding with him and hunting with him ever since uh and then at heart i'm a pointer guy uh i love them long tail dogs there's nothing like that whip tail you know going like crazy and then going straight, you know, poker straight. Um, but for some reason, last year in 2019, I ended up with two short hairs. So um, I got a short hair from a buddy that I was supposed to take on just the field trial and train. Uh He needed some kennel space at his house because he's got nine or ten uh, short hairs and uh ended up buying – That dog from him, I started field trialing them and and doing pretty good with them. So, Um, And then ended up getting another short hair from my buddy Brandon. Had a litter out of two of awesome dogs. They're both UFTA national champions um, and uh, multi-time champions throughout their UFTA career. Uh, So this was going to be his final litter with them. So I had to get a puppy from them and ended up getting a, a solid black short hair. From them, Axel. Um, so I'm in the process. He's eight months old right now and uh, pretty much got him steady to shot at this point, just working that, continuing to work that steady to shot. But, you know, the managing that many dogs. Um, so, as I mentioned before, one of them right now is retired. He's 12 years old. He hasn't hunted in like two years. Um, he's deaf. I got to wave him on into the house to get him to come back. Uh, so, you know, I don't really, other than letting him out of the house, that's pretty much what he does and, and sleeps all day. Um, you know, he definitely deserves Deserves it. I mean, he's pointed thousands of birds and retrieved thousands of birds. So, um, but I have four acres here in Kentucky and, uh, you know, so that gives him the opportunity to exercise them multiple times a day. Um, uh, especially right now with all the time off, <laughs> but, uh, You know, having access to, we have a our uh, local Quail Forever chapter, and also UFTA chapter has um, some property south of where I live, and uh, it's probably about, I don't know, 30, 40 acres of perfectly manicured field trial fields, and uh, so we can go down there, and then I've got a local preserve that I guide at, Uh, so pretty much the whole season. Um, if we're not chasing wild quail, uh, or, and, or if I'm not deer hunting, cause I live right next to Fort Knox and there's a lot of great opportunities to, to, you know, take some really decent deer, um, out there. So I'm pretty much just focused on archery hunting. Um, cause that, the, the quail season comes in like the beginning of November. So, uh, you know, we like to get after the quail as much as we can. So, um. So,
0: uh, how does quail hunting differ from pheasant hunting? <laughs> I mean, in North, you know, from North Dakota pheasant and ducks to quail in in Kentucky. Like, what? What? What's? How much is the same, and how much is different?
1: So, there. It's really that's not a loaded question, but it kind of is because. I've experienced two different places now hunting wild pheasants, North Dakota and Kansas. Uh, We hunted Kansas this past year for quail and and pheasant, and then quail in Kentucky. So, I mean, we all know how big a quail is, and they're not, as far as habitat goes, it's really not anything close to what you think you're going to find pheasants in. Um, it's really kind of thin, sparse cover, uh, because that's a tiny bird that's got to be able to move and escape and elude predators. But what, what I've learned here in in Kentucky and what we learned in Kansas, you're going to find them in stuff that's like maybe about 36 to 48 inches or above that, that is kind of like a cover canopy but then kind of thin underneath. So there was this weird stuff in Kansas that was like these, they weren't like really bamboo, but that's what they kind of looked like. And it had like this stuff at the top of it. And our our friend that went with us was explaining like, think about it, a predator bird is not gonna dive bomb that stuff because it's gonna get hung up, you know, in its wings. So even here in Kentucky, like when I'm hunting uh, quail on Fort Knox, you'll find them, in these small, little, really thin, sparsy patches of trees. Um, you know, kind of, in some ways, the same kind of stuff that you might find woodcock in. Um, so, uh, it, it's, it's super different. In Kansas, though, we were finding pheasants in the same stuff as we were finding quail in, Like, almost completely mowed pasture fields, basically and you, you, the dog would go on point and you think you're gonna flush a covey of quail and a pheasant would bust out. So I would say that in most cases, you're not gonna find the quail in the same places that you're gonna find the pheasants, but you're gonna find the pheasants in the places that you're gonna find the quail. So because if the cover's too thick, the quail aren't, aren't necessarily gonna go in there because they can't navigate through that undercover, you know, low onto the ground where, a phe- I mean, a pheasant can plow through snow so you know going from north dakota hunting pheasants in basically cattail sloughs you know trying to catch them between the cattail sloughs and the crp to the crops was basically what you were doing um you know and and having a lab in that situation was definitely i mean you can do it with a pointer obviously um i kind of use them in conjunction with each other the pointers go on point i send the lab in the flush and then all the dogs retrieve the bird, you know, whoever gets the bird, bring them back. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a completely different quail are completely different. And, and the worst thing about quail is wrapping your mind around the fact that when you, when your dogs point a covey, don't shoot on the covey rise, which is the hardest thing on the planet for a Upland bird hunter to do. Because if you do that, you're going to push those birds way, like 60, 70, 80 yards out in front of you. Whereas if you were to just flush the covey, they might only go 20 yards. And then that way you can get better dog work and hunt and actually possibly limit out depending on how big that covey is.
0: So when it comes to hunting quail, you're you're trying to just sort of bust the covey up and then almost hunt individual birds out of that covey then?
1: Exactly. Yeah, and, and for us, you know, it's for us. It's all about the dogs and all about the dog work. Like I could, I want. I obviously my goal is to shoot birds, so the dogs can retrieve them and everything like that. But I also want to get good dog work out of it. So generally, yeah, exactly what you said. Cubby comes up, and typically, I mean, a covey of a, a covey of quail needs, you know. Your, the name of your podcast is the Con- Conservation unfilter. so we're trying to conserve this this resource that we have. So a covey of quail needs like eight to ten to twelve birds to sit, to covey up at night to actually survive the night when it, when in freezing temperatures. So typically, if you bust a covey up and it's like under ten birds, you don't really want to necessarily shoot any of those birds out of there. If you do, maybe one or two. um, Cause they need to cubby back up, you know, so that they can survive the night, uh, in that cubby. So, but yeah, basically you're going in, dogs are pointing. If you've got a lab to go in and flush them, they flush them up. You kind of step back and watch where they go. Cause if you're, and this has happened to me before, when I first started hunting quail on Fort Knox, I shot on the cubby rise. Um, but it's harder to pick out where every single bird went when you're just blasting on the cover rise rather than kind of sitting back and watching it happen, then you can kind of, okay, pinpoint where they went and then let your dogs do their thing.
0: Yeah. As someone that grew up with limited small game hunting as, as a youngster, but uh, I grew up with, with my dad uh, hunting or. Arb- family Brittany over grouse Mm -hmm. in the north woods of Pennsylvania I mean if you didn't shoot quick you weren't getting a shot at this oh absolutely (laughs) that would be the hardest thing for me is to to let them go and you know I I even so we hunt the the stocked birds you know pheasants uh, on game lands and I love it it's great it's as good as it can be in Pennsylvania yeah Um, but two springs ago about about a year ago uh, my boss and his father-in-law and myself and both my parents uh, we went to a hunting preserve and they released pheasants and I was going just to get the dog work Um, yeah my boss is a adult onset hunter so he just wanted to try pheasant hunting uh, before he had to buy the permit to you know be able to hunt them on the game lands with me and um, it was you know he's standing right next to me my dog's on point the bird gets up And he'd been waterfowl hunting a couple of times. So he's slowly getting his gun up and it's, you know, his gun's not even shouldered by the time the bird's already fallen because I shot, you know, it was hard for me to, (laughs) to, you know, turn off that sort of predator instinct of, I just got to get it down quick.
1: Um, So
0: that, that would definitely be a real big change for me hunt, trying to hunt quail, which is something I'd like to do at at some point uh, with these dogs. But um, you know, trips are, uh, to find quail, uh, just like trying to find pheasant from Pennsylvania. It's quite a, quite an excursion. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, can't, like I said, we went to Kansas this year it was the first time I've ever been to Kansas and, you know, just like North Dakota, you know, it, it, by far my favorite game bird to hunt is rough grouse. Um, there's nothing like, you know, hearing a rough grouse fly away after your dog pointed it and you never even saw it. Uh, but um you know out there it's the wide open west there's really no you know you're 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 kind of hunting you know we did hunt kind of a lot along creek bottoms and stuff like that cuz that's where those birds were at um you know but for the most part a lot of times you're in the wide open so when you do get that cub- bust up that covey uh and and typically you're going to find them in like I found a lot of birds in kind of like draws and stuff um where in that low spot there was a little bit more cover but it wasn't nowhere near as thick as it might be in other spots but um you know a- about the only time that i shot on the Covey rise was because uh, out there we use onyx map like crazy uh if you go out west 100 percent download and pay for onyx maps because it shows all the walk-in hunting areas um, and, and, you know, obviously it has the people, landowner's names on it, you know, so to try to get permission area if, if areas posted and obviously depending on where you're at. But um, so that was really the only time that I ever really shot on the covey rise was when they were flying off the walk-in area that I were, was in and going on the private land and I couldn't go over there and pursue them. So, um, but yeah, it was, you know, it's a completely different hunting game than anything that i was used to um now here in kentucky on some private land that we've got access on um you know we'll find them especially on farms uh and and a lot of what we do is hook up with rabbit hunters um you know and and it's it's funny because what i've learned kind of is a lot of the rabbit hunters will shoot quail over their rabbit dogs but like at least me and my group of upland hunters, I, don't, I won't shoot rabbits over my bird dogs. Um, but we've had the opportunity to hook up with a lot of rabbit guys that will take us out because they just want to see the dog work on these quail, you know, and they're flushing coveys of quail all over their rabbit hunting places. And, uh, but a lot of that area is going to be fence rows. Um, this year we did uh, one farm that a friend of ours took us to. Uh, we were going across a mowed hayfield that they probably mowed in October. And so it was only about eight or nine inches tall at the time, green grass. And, uh, the guy goes, you think we'll find any out in there? I'm like, no, we need to hit these fence rows that are in here, man. <laughs> no sooner than he said that my, uh, short hair tuck goes on point about 50 yards out in front of us. Perfect point all by himself. I go to take a step towards him and about 25 quail come up out of the middle of this field. Uh, we ended up only shooting one because one of the guys forgot to take his turkey choke out of his gun. He was a friend of the guy that invited us and he was turkey hunting the day before. And, uh, you know, not upland guys at all. And, uh, but he ended up hitting one, um, from pretty far away. Cause he was behind me. Um, you know, kind of behind me but off to the side. Obviously, it wasn't shooting over top of me or anything like that. But uh, you know, so it kind of all depends on where you're where you're at. Um, like I said, in Kansas, we're finding pheasants in stuff that I mean you could see the dirt almost and, and you're flushing pheasants up, you know, because they can get super low to the ground as it is. And uh so but and the dog work out of the out there was awesome because of the short cover you get to see you know, we all run alphas or the 550 plus GPS collars. And, uh, you know, sometimes in North Dakota and stuff like that, you don't necessarily get to see the dog on point. So you go up to flush the bird. Um, you know, whereas in Kansas, it was pretty, pretty easy to see good dog work out there. So
0: as I talked to more, yeah, I, let me, let me start again. I stumbled into, Upland hunting. Um, I, I grew up with Britney's in the house. Uh, my dad got a Britney when I was real young uh, because he was very into grouse hunting. And a friend of ours, a family friend that lived by our camp, uh, he used to breed Britney's and he field trialed Britney's. And uh, my dad fell in love with that breed. Uh, move on to the second Britney that we got, and it was just purely a house dog. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I, uh, was getting ready to get out of college, I decided I wanted my own, my own dog. So, um, got a, got a Brittany. She was the runt of the litter. Um, and there was really no, in the back of my mind, I was thinking it'd be cool to hunt with this dog, but I never, like, I wasn't buying a dog purely to be a hunting dog. Um, she, you know, she was just there to, to lay with me and, and play. And, um, one year i uh the think it was probably f- six years ago um i shot you know because for me it's, it's it has always been about deer hunting and specifically archery hunting mm-hmm. and i shot a buck on the first opening day of archery season in pennsylvania so the first weekend of october and um now it's like okay what do i do now right yeah uh, i'm not used to, i've never shot a, a deer this early what do i do now uh, so i decided you know what i'll i'll take her pheasant hunting and see just why not uh, and it turned out she was for very minimal training she was actually really really good um by this point i'd already had uh, gotten a second dog um that was probably two or so and had zero bird training um and then so then the next year i started taking both of them out together uh, so i stumbled into it and turned turned out i had two very two very good hunting dogs they're not Mm. uh, elite hunting dogs by any means they don't have the training but they're both they can find the birds yeah you've mentioned multiple times about trying to to get you know you're trying to see the dogs work um and then you've also mentioned that you know you're running a a flushing dog with a pointing dog at the same time and dog goes on point and then you send the flusher i mean that takes a lot of work to train those two dogs to work together like that. And you've mentioned the field trials. I mean, how, how much time are you putting into training these dogs?
1: So as I mentioned before, I, we live on four acres here in Kentucky. Um, and before we lived here, we lived on Fort Knox at a townhouse basically with three bird dogs in the house. Um, you know, so I was limited to what I could do. Uh, in North Dakota, I was able to run them, you know, on wild birds all the time. So that was, you know, pretty much a, a, a gimme out there. They were getting on birds all the time. Um, so, I mean, my opportunities now, like with this new puppy that I got, it's every day. Um, I've got about 25 pigeons in a pigeon coop and, uh, have three or four of them that are recalling now. And, uh, you know, for this is a, a hobby that I'm like just enveloped in over the last twelve years um you know my wife loves it she's not out there hunting with us or anything like that but she loves all the dogs she actually my new puppy axel pretty much woe broke him while I was in Kansas um whether that be you know woe breaking them on not letting him eat until he woes and stays there until you tell him he can eat you know going outside stuff like that so um I mean it's pretty much with the right tools and having the product a little bit of property that I have and the fact that I've got live birds on hand all the time um now you know it, it's pretty much one of those things that I can do day in and day out um you know and, and I think the biggest thing for people that are getting into it and they're, you know, a lot of guys that get into it from the, from the start. And I don't, I don't know if when I got into it, I was even thinking about this. Um, I just thought it was cool having a gun dog, you know? Oh yeah. I've got a dog that is not only a companion, but it's my hunting buddy tool too, you know, and it's a tool. Um, You know, I mean, I've got a, a three dog kennel outside that, We've only got two dogs in the house usually at a time because if I had five dogs in the house, I'd go nuts. Um, But, uh, you know, being able to have those tools to be able to train them, I think is what kind of not, I don't think it turns people off, but it intimidates a lot of people from the get go. Um, You know, so, and I've learned with this dog with the, because I built some launchers um, you know, to, I'm sure you've seen those where you can put the bird inside of it, and then that way you can help the dog get steady on the launcher. Um, you know, so doing all that, plus doing field trialing, and it's kind of a balance because ultimately, we want them to be as good as they can be as hunting dogs first. The field trialing thing is just an added bonus to where we can get them on birds throughout the year consistently, um, you know, and there was a time where I didn't field trial in between moving to all these, when I lived in North Dakota, I didn't. So in the off season in North Dakota, I really didn't do anything with my dogs. Um, cause there's, there's a, I'm pretty sure there's a, like a time period during the year where they don't want you running dogs on public land, you know, obviously during hatching season and eggs and stuff like that. Um, you know so i didn't really do anything with them but what i found was the dogs that i had that i didn't do that with phenomenal dogs to hunt with phenomenal dogs to guide with at preserves um, but because i wasn't able to do that stuff with them consistently throughout the entire year the field trialing thing they kind of lacked in a little bit um so yeah i mean having that, having the access to that, you know, definitely makes a huge difference with the training and, you know, the biggest thing is finding the time to do it, which if it's right out your back door, it's not, not that hard to do, you know, and I've got tons of people around us here. Um, the small group that I have, we call ourselves the bluegrass uplanders. We're just, you know, a group of four guys that love to train dogs, love to hunt and love to do field trial. Um, so, we all live fairly close to each other. So, you know, if one of them wants to train, they just call up and say, Hey, I'm bringing the dog over. Okay. <laughs> you know, so it definitely makes it easier having all those tools at, at your fingertips to train with for sure.
0: I definitely want to talk about the blue gla- bluegrass Uplanders, but before I forget um, you've mentioned having the right tools. Yep. If it's someone that's getting started, what are just even the first couple tools that they need that are going to help to make them successful at least in the minimal in in a minimal training aspect i mean what what are those must-haves you have to have
1: so i think one thing um that i kind of learned early on is having a mentor in this realm of bird hunting uh and training dogs um whether that mentor for me was the guy that I got my first bird dog from that owned an outfitter, owned a training facility, but he took me under his wing and helped me train my first bird dog for the first year um, that I had him. So finding a mentor, definitely, I mean, pretty much all over the country, uh, you know, Pennsylvania specifically, there's tons of, of groups of people, you know, whether it be a NAVDA chapter, a UFTA field trials, you know linking up with those guys um, there's AKC trial, uh, field trial organizations, chapters all over the place so I think first and foremost if you're gonna get a bird dog and take on a bird dog um, you know I, I definitely don't there's one thing in this whole thing that kind of it sometimes burns me up but it, it's you know it, to each it's own. everybody has an opinion If you're gonna get one of these dogs, you definitely should try to use it for what it was meant to be used for. You know, there's people I talk to all the time that get a short hair and they can't understand why it chews everything in their house. Well, you you leave it in the house for 12 to 14 hours every day and you're not giving it an outlet to do something. Um, So, you know, having access to somebody to show you the ins and outs of what it takes to have a bird dog. Uh, You know, whether you're a meat hunter, I mean, as long as the dog goes on point and finds birds, um, you know, and allows you to go in and flush them and shoot them and harvest that bird, hey, that's, you know, the best thing. If you want to get further into it and you want to start field trialing and hunt testing and stuff like that, then finding a mentor to help you do that, you know, is probably the number one thing. Um, You know, along with that, not everybody can have pigeons like I've got, Um, like I said, I've got. Think 25. I think I got a bunch of chicks in there now. Um, you know, so having that definitely helps. Uh, the wing on the string thing is a huge thing. Just to get that, plant that seed to show that dog, like, oh, I can do. The, the dog already has it. It just you need to draw it out. Um, so the wing on the string is a, a good thing. We take that one further, and I actually have a little. Pigeon harness that I got from lion country supply uh that you put the pigeon in this harness and I've got a string tied to it to a little pole, and we do pigeon on a string uh so you know it takes that wing on a string and advances it once the puppy's ready to see a live bird um, you know so having those things a good training video in my opinion is something that that is definitely a must have because If you, and you want to watch that training video from start to finish, um, and and don't move on from the one step until they have it down and then you can move on to the next step. Um, so that's, you know, just a handful of things that I've learned over the years. Every dog that I've got since I've grown through this process has gotten better and better because the first dog Ruger, I had no idea what I was doing. Um you know, and it's, it's more training the the handler than anything. Um, You know, and I I encourage a lot of people to, if they're going to get one, they, they need to take on the training part, a lot of it themselves. Um, It's good to have a professional trainer if you're going to go that route to help you along the way. But um, and, and, this new puppy that I had, I had full intentions on sending him to a professional trainer to start everything. Um, but then I kind of got kicked in the butt by a couple buddies and they're like, why don't you just do it yourself? You have all the tools, you know what you're doing. Um, you know, sometimes I don't think I know what I'm doing, but, uh, you know, and just being consistent with it, you know, the, the yard work, you know, the here, the come, the the woe breaking all that stuff you can do at your house without birds um you know that the birds and gun part it's not something that necessarily you want to come later but that's something you can do in a controlled environment where you can go buy some birds from somebody you know link up with a mentor or a friend that has pigeons or whatever um and you can expose them to that stuff but I, i i you know try to tell everybody is getting a puppy know what you're getting into what are your expectations that you want out of that puppy? Um, you know, for us, it's the good dog work. Like we don't, you know, take anything less than, like I said, my, my puppy Axel at eight months old is steady to shot at this point. And this is the first dog that I've had that was steady to shot. Um, but it's being consistent. And it, like I said, it doesn't even have to do with anything with having birds because you don't woe break a dog with birds anyway. That's like, you know, as you know, that's a command like no or hear. Um, So you can do that in the house um, with starting with food. Don't let them eat their food until you tell them that it's okay to to eat their food. Um, So you can kind of plant those little seeds, you know, early on in the process. So, but definitely having the right tools. And I was able to build my own launchers because I wasn't going to pay 330 bucks for a launcher. So, I was able to build my own launchers for about one hundred and thirty-five dollars a piece, um, and that's just a complete game changer when training a pointing dog for sure. So, um, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> no, that
0: that that's good information, and um, you know, I, I have a good family friend that has his own pigeons, and he uses them to to train his dogs, and um, you know it's fine it's funny that you mentioned the mentor part because um since i've gotten more into the the pheasant hunting he's really uh provided that sort of mentorship for for me and i've used his pigeons not all that often but i've used them to typically it's right before the season um you know a couple of times just to sort of get that drive back in in the dogs and get them the focus and um last year we had a a real hard early frost and in something happened and his birds didn't make it through. Um, Ooh. so, you know, he was, he called to let me know. And when he let me know, it wasn't just, Hey, I don't have birds too bad. It was, Hey, I don't have birds. Um, these are five guys that have birds that yeah. they know, you know that I'm going to be using their birds and they're fine if with you coming and using their birds too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that network, the, the mentor network is far and wide, and, and yeah. there's a lot of people that will help, uh, especially someone new to it. So, you know, it is intimidating, but once you start talking to some people, uh, like you mentioned, you know, whether that's uh, through field trial associations or even just Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever members, um, there, there's a lot of people that will help you through that process. Uh, so let's get back to the the bluegrass uplanders. What You said it's a, just a, a group of you and some friends, um, but what do you guys do? What's, what's the purpose?
1: So basically, um, like I said, there's four of us. It was kind of like something that organically came together. Um, we haven't been a group like this, you know, with a name uh, for very long. I think December was when we kind of came up with the idea. Um, You know, we wanted to put it on a platform where we could kind of showcase the upland world um, and how much fun it is, as you know. Uh, You know, as you mentioned before, deer hunting, you know, usually when, you know, most states you shoot that one deer uh, and you're done for the season unless you can get more doe tags or whatever. Um, You know, the upland thing you can do every day that the season's open and, you know, there's a limit every day. So it's something that you can continue to do. So it was just kind of an idea that that popped in two of our, me and another buddy's heads. Um, and he he kind of had a similar group called the Bluegrass Waterfowlers. It was kind of the same thing, just like group of guys that loved to waterfowl hunt. And then put everything on social media on what they were doing. Um, you know, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and then I've been guiding at... Put and take hunting preserves um, since about 2010. I uh, started out with the one in, in Pennsylvania. And then when I moved to North Dakota, I actually hooked up with a, a put and take um, hunting preserve that was out there uh, and, and would guide for him every so often. You know, guys that just don't want to buy a hunting license and, you know, take the time to go out and, and, and find wild birds. Cause even in North Dakota, sometimes you're walking, you know, 10, 15 miles a day. Just for a limit of birds, um, but so we kind of incorporate that in it. Uh, we guided a local preserve here in Kentucky called Dawn's Hunting and P- Fishing um, Adventures. Uh, they do they offer quail, pheasants, and chucker. Um, they've got about I think 350 acres that we that we release birds on and, and do some guiding. Um, and then we've got the uh, the field trialing part of it, um, you know. But then it all culminates in It's all about the dogs and training the dogs you know and kind of having that group of guys that no matter what if they pick up the phone and call hey can i bring the dog over to work birds yes come on over you know so there's always anytime we go out and are doing something with our dogs there's usually at least two of us very rarely is one of us only going to do something Um, even when we're guiding you know one one guy's planting birds you know, there's two of us guiding because we're running three or four dogs at a time. Um, so, you know, it's pretty much just putting a name to what we were doing already, you know, and it kind of fits bluegrass uplanders. We're in the bluegrass state um, and we're, we love upland hunting. So, you know, and, and it's, it's opened a lot of opportunities um, for us as well in a very short amount of time um we we were invited on another podcast where we did two episodes with those guys um and then we've been invited on multiple private land um by private landowners to hunt uh you know kind of the concept of we have quail on our property we don't have any dogs will you bring your dogs out and take us hunting on our own property um you know which is not something necessarily that, you know, you as a deer hunter aren't going to go to a private landowner and say, hey, can I hunt on your property and take you with me? You know, that's kind of counter, you know, counterproductive on your part, Uh, you know, to where as us, as long as my dogs are getting the work, if I shoot birds, I don't really care, you know, so that's kind of the premise of it. Um, You know, we've kind of put a name to it, put a logo to it, and you know started a a facebook page and instagram page and i think we have like almost 1600 followers on our um facebook so far so um you know we're kind of trying to roll out some more ideas and and you know with the guiding on on private land um you know i'm in the process of i'm going to get my commercial guide license here in kentucky um you know just the um on private land i'm not I got to look and see if it's something that we definitely need, but it's just going to give me that, you know, edge that I'm a, a licensed commercial hunting guide, basically. Um, so that's pretty much it, you know, just putting a name to it. So,
0: yeah. And you know, looking at some of the social media that, you know, the posts that you guys have put out there uh, I can, because we're trying to do the, a similar thing, you know, mm-hmm. working mainly through uh, internet-based and, and social media. And uh, anytime you can put a post out there that has a picture of a dog or mm-hmm. a story of a dog, you're going to get a ton of traction because people love dogs. Yep. And uh, that just makes sense. <laughs> That's a, a good business plan for sure to really know yeah, what the dogs are doing, um, you know, as opposed to what people are doing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, dogs don't know how to use the internet. <laughs> I'm sure if they did, they would post selfies on themselves all the time. Um, and like you said, I mean, we're basically an avenue for the dogs to put out what they can do. Um, you know, I... Some of these dogs are some of the most popular dogs in the country, as as far as pets go. You know, the Labrador Retriever is the number one dog in the country. Um, but so many people, I, I venture to say, probably ninety to ninety five percent of people in the country that have a lab don't hunt with it. Um, you know, and and it's unfortunate, but a lot of those dogs end up being given up because they don't have an outlet for it. Um, you know, and that's what one of the things that I always bring up is having an outlet for these dogs, whether it be running it from your four-wheeler, you know, we do um, the dock dogs with our dogs as well, um, you know, so that just gives it another outlet in the summertime when it's hot out, you know, we're not really chasing birds and doing field trialing here and there, but, uh, you know, giving them an outlet is is the most important thing, you know, just if it's you know if you got a small space to just run let them run and be a dog um you know but they were designed to have a job and it's up to us to give them that job to do you know no matter what it was no matter what it is so
0: yeah i mean i see that big time with with my britney's you know they're a pretty high drive breed and you know during hunting season I mean they're they're happy they're content um they're you know at home in the middle of the week when I don't get a chance to to hunt them as much because of work you know they're content to just sort of lay on their dog bed and and get petted a little bit um but now like we're not in hunting season I've been trying to to take them out to do just some basic, not training over birds, but just some basic field work, um, mm-hmm. to give them that outlet. Because you can see it in their eyes; they just they need something to do. And if I don't give it to them, um, my yard really starts to get <laughs> tough to mow because they start digging holes. <laughs> yep,
1: absolutely. Yep. And I've got we've got about 40 chickens at our house here, so you know, every time I let the puppy out, he's constantly going on point and I'm able to to use the chickens for woe breaking as well. Um, you know, so, but like I said, and keep saying, and you know, I, I feel like that's my motto is it's all about the dogs, you know, this whole, whole thing that we do. Um, you know, I want to see good dog work out in the field and, you know, we all have high expectations for our dogs and, you know, expect them to do what we train them to do. Um, you know, and it's nice having a companion that is also your hunting buddy at the same time, you know? Um, and as I mentioned before, my lab lives in the house with us all the time cause he would go insane down in the kennel. Um, you know, right now we've got the puppy in the house. Uh, but usually, you know, We've got one or two dogs in the house at a time, so they're, you know, just as much a part of our family as as my daughter and my wife are, you know. So,
0: yeah, uh, very well said. Uh, th- as I mentioned on a previous podcast uh, about dogs, uh, oftentimes I like dogs more than I like people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, they're definitely a part of the family, uh, Court. This was a great conversation. thanks for coming on and um, definitely want to get you on again to talk a little bit more once we get a little closer to actual upland bird season.
1: yeah, absolutely and I'd love to man um, our Our cabin is up in Somerset, Pennsylvania um, it would it's definitely feasible for you and I to link up during the season for sure, whether it be me coming to where you're at up up uh, where your camp's at or you coming down to where I'm at i got I got some secret grouse spots that I had to blind you blindfold you to take you there but uh, <laughs> you know
0: hey, well, 100% <laughs> you uh, you want to get together and and do some hunting together absolutely I'm all on board with that Wow 50 episodes come and gone a little over a year after we started I am truly thankful for how wonderful the hunting community has been, the conservation community has been, to really be very accepting of this concept that I and and my friends and family have have developed. I know that the hunting community is very accepting of new people or new ideas uh, from time to time. But it truly is humbling to see these people that, honestly, I look up to welcome me with open arms. It's been absolutely great. And this conversation with Corey is just a, a fine example of that. You know, the average hunter that decides that this passion is worth pursuing, really, to the point where you end up with five dogs, right? <laughs> that that seems to be a lot of us out there. Um, if we have the means and we have the time, we really take this passion to a whole nother level uh, if you have time reach out to Corey and his friends uh, either on instagram or facebook just search bluegrass uplanders and you're going to find their profiles they really have some great content out there and i really see their concept taking off in the very near future uh, it, it's great to see people showcasing the good side of hunting in in the news and in headlines and we always hear about the bad actors you know the poachers the people that are doing things they're not supposed to be doing it's great to talk to and listen to and see people doing great things that aren't getting paid to do those great things right they're they're doing it out of a a love for the sport a love for the activity uh, and in this case a love for the dogs and it. Like I said, it's just great to see that, and it'd be great to see more people like that becoming more popular than the average hunting personality that we see that seem to be doing things for the fame and the fortune. Again, I want to thank you for joining me. These 50 episodes have flown by, and I have just really thoroughly enjoyed myself, and I hope that you have too. So until next week, stay wild.